Welcome to Risk Sleep Repeat, a podcast that features influential guest speakers from the world of fire, health and safety. We're going to focus on trust-based safety, owning and embracing risk and the importance of people over paperwork. Hosted by me, Adam Clark, Managing Director and Mike Stevens, CEO of Practice 42. If you're a fire, health and safety professional, join us for inspirational conversations about the future of our industry. Professor John McDermott is the Director of the Assuring Autonomy International Programme at the University of York. This programme focuses on the safety of robotics and autonomous systems. He is also a non-executive director for the Health and Safety Executive, became a Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering in 2002 and was awarded an OBE in 2010. Hello John, great to see you again. Interesting to understand that uh, you've been doing some research even Uh, on the basis that you're the expert in in your subject. And uh, what what did you have to research recently for the MSC? Oh, for the the MSC module that that I taught, I mean, one of the areas I was looking at is uh, uh, about how you operate autonomous um, systems. They're beginning to become more widely used in industry, even though perhaps, you know, with uh, less penetration than some of the, that the hype would tell you, but things are beginning to move into operation. So looking at things around sort of safety management systems for, for autonomous systems, you know, some of which is there in the research literature, but, but actually not, not very much. So some of it was reflecting what was there, but some of it was actually giving people, you know, new pointers and identifying open questions they would need to look at and, and so on. So quite a, quite an interesting perspective. So the, the people that were on the MSC, and what, what sort of backgrounds would they be from or what would be their, their interest in taking up on the MSC? Their backgrounds are, are quite varied, to, to be honest, but almost without exception, the people who come on our MSC are already working in industry, so encountering some of these um, problems in practice. We have people from a, a range of sectors, from from healthcare, from aviation, from um, rail, from from more general engineering. So very very wide um, background. And I think that the, the reason that people come on the the courses are, are really um, twofold. You know, often people have moved into working on safety from some other discipline and will have covered very little of it um, in an undergraduate degree so they're looking to actually to build up some of the, the basic knowledge to help them do their job but also there are sometimes people who've been working in safety for a long time and are coming across new technological challenges and want advice and guidance on how to deal with those new challenges and autonomous systems ai machine learning are some of the things that are coming to the forefront in these areas so these people are having to to, to face for the first time. So that's you know one of the other motivations for coming. And, and on that basis is that the case studies that you might have had or the, what you put into uh, the learning, which always helps, did you find that uh, there was uh, examples which were being given to you, which you learned from, or were you giving examples to help people understand the principles? It was more us creating examples to help people um, understand the, the principles. Many of the systems are very complex, so we tend to create examples motivated by an understanding of what happens in the real world, but simply enough that people can actually you know, work on them in a couple of hours that they have for an, for an exercise. If we gave them a real system, they wouldn't have finished reading the description by the time the exercise would have finished so so they're artificial but influenced by reality 
Have you found that uh, with your work with the HSE that um, they're looking for that sort of uh, leadership from you and the, the thought processes that they should be going through in terms of how they approach either guidance or enforcement relating to automated or autonomous systems? I, I, I think uh, you know, pragmatically it's it, it's it's guidance. Um, you know, there are inspectors better qualified than I to go out and look at the various systems in the different uh, domains. It requires a lot of experience and domain knowledge to do that. But some of the novel technical areas, I think they're interested in getting uh, you know advice and guidance as somebody who's looking more from the for, from the technical technical end so when we um when we met up uh we were talking about that sometimes the systems that have been developed they don't necessarily have that safety element at the design at the beginning stage is that is that still an issue that you see uh, or is it starting to be become part of that whole design process I think it's still the case that many people focus on developing something first and then thinking about safety second. Um, I do know a, a few counterexamples, I think, who have thought about the safety issues quite um, seriously from the beginning, but, but I still think it's more prevalent to focus on design, making things work, you know, focus on the machine learning processes, develop um, algorithms, and then asking the questions about, um, you know, how we make things safe, you know, quite a long way down the track. And sometimes it's fine, sometimes they've made design decisions that mean there is a sensible route through to being able to uh, demonstrate the safety of the systems, but actually so sometimes not. Sometimes they've made decisions that mean it's actually very hard to demonstrate safety of the system. You know, I, I you know can't give you details, but I mean that's been you know prevalent of more conventional um, systems anyway. But I think it's even more common with um, these more advanced systems using machine learning and so on. They're developed by people who don't have that safety culture, that safety background and are quite often being developed by SMEs who have, you know, spun out of a university or something with some bright ideas and some technology, but who actually haven't been through those sorts of engineering processes in, in, uh, in an industrial setting before. So you're, I guess, saying that part of the safety management system is that you would engage those stakeholders and those people which would have that view on life as early as possible within the design process. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the key parts of a safety management system is setting up an appropriate organisation. And in doing that, you would need to bring in you know, all sorts of stakeholders, including those who have the, the necessary technical and domain expertise. Yeah, through my career as a practitioner, I think it's that thing where, you know, you have a different view on life. And um, I recall being on something which was called a bid solutions team in the telecoms industry. And it was uh, lots of enthusiasm from the salesperson who'd managed to talk to a client and try to understand what it was that they wanted. And then because it was of such a size that they'd come to the bid solutions team and of course I'd be sitting on there and ask some questions which never became part of that whole process and didn't stop them winning the business but actually made sure that they didn't want to incur extreme cost but also made sure that at the very beginning there was a design uh, design in there about how do we how are we going to do these things and what responsibilities are going to be there who's going to do what 
No, I think that, that's very, very important. And to be honest, that, that experience doesn't change with autonomy or using these sorts of technologies that, you know, the, the, the technical issues, the skills you need are, are different, but those sort of fundamental things that you've said stay the same. But it also does remind me of a time when I was an expert witness on some you know, system that had gone wrong and, and caused some quite serious damage. And I was you know, asked by the lawyer, well, when did it first go wrong? Um, well, when they chose the supplier. Because uh, they, you know, they had a bid that wasn't going to deliver them a safe solution, and they chose them and gave them a contract. And you know, it was more or less inevitable it would go, it would go wrong. And so, you know, that early engagement um, is is really critical to avoid those sorts of sorts of problems. And it's um, it's interesting that the, the principles come back time and time again, don't they? And organisational responsibilities. I suppose it you know it depends on the organ it depends on the business or organization and then where do you find that, that expertise so for as, as a practitioner would it be somebody that would be really close to it or would you suggest that somebody external came in to provide that level of support it's an interesting question i think it's it's always a question how much you use sort of independent experts I think with the sort of technology we're talking about and the fact that it evolves very, very fast, it's really hard just to come in as an external and, and look at a, a snapshot of the system because they're evolving all the time. So I think it has to be somebody who actually has quite close involvement in the project, but is able to, you know, step back from time to time and say, you know, actually at you know at, at this milestone in the development, all is well or all is well except um, A, B and C that, that need resolving. But I think without that intimate involvement, trying to come in and get an understanding um, you know, as, as an external is really very difficult. But actually I think, you know, I think that's one of the reasons I, I, I see, you know, perhaps more developments where the safety issues are not being dealt with in a, in a timely manner. I think you do really need that early and sort of through life engagement, you know, the way these systems are developed and the way they way they evolve. I, say, I think, you know, that's always true with safety, but I think it's it's heightened, it's exacerbated by the nature of these sorts of autonomous, you know, autonomous technologies, machine learning and so on. I think that's going to be helpful for the listener because this thing about do you bring in the consultants or do you have somebody that is actually very integrated and passionate about what it is that's happening. Um, this is a, there's, a, there's a job for each, I think. And um, the, the, the point being is that sometimes with consultants, you, you bring them in if there's not the competency, but also you haven't got the time to do it. So I think it's a bit of both sometimes. But how, how, do, you, how do you deal with this situation where the client... It's a bit like the construction designer management regulations where the client necessarily isn't an expert, but they're entrusting others to deliver. How do you think the client can protect themselves from getting themselves into a position where they didn't select the right supplier? I, I think there are probably three critical facets here. I mean, one is simply um, domain knowledge, and, and one of the great benefits of the program involved in is we work across many, many different domains. But you know, it's clear that the nature of hazards in, say, maritime autonomy versus road vehicles versus mining are very, very different, and, and you need to have sensitivity to that to be able to understand it. Second, you need people um, with with deep technical specialisms. Um, you know, for example, in machine learning techniques, 
but they also need to be the sort of people who are capable of explaining what they're doing in, um, I won't say lay terms, but in terms that other engineers can understand, and that's often not the, the case. And, and third, you need um, safety people, um, but the sort of safety people who are open-minded and prepared to address not novel problems, as opposed to those who have a rather more uh, compliance mentality, um, you know, if, if I can put it put it that way. So, you know, rather than have somebody saying, well, you know, it says this in clause 13.7, how have you met that? We'll say, actually, the intent of this part of the standard is the following, you know, explain to me how you've met that in, in intent. And there are plenty of people like that around, but there are also too many of the, of the former who will look for you complying with a letter, but not actually understanding the underlying intent. And, um, you know, but getting all those three things together is actually not all that common, sadly. I know a few companies that are like that, but they're um, rarer than you might might wish. No, no, it's good that you've uh, bulleted it like that because it, it it's really useful to to think about those things which challenge health and safety practitioners and uh, and, and how the profession goes forward is uh, the open minded description which you've got is the is it somebody's intent in their role as a practitioner is to say no or is it to say yes but these are the things you need to consider i think that's right i think you do need people who are prepared to say yes but rather than no at least at least most of the time i've been in situations where the answer really was no but uh, i think you're right particularly with this sort of te technology i also think you know it, it it shaping the discipline and we always say that safety is through life but there tends to be a bit of a disconnect between those things we do prior to deployment, you know, here's a safety case or a safety justification, whatever you call it, and then you move into operation. I think the nature of these systems mean that that boundary, which is artificial anyway, becomes really um, unsustainable. So I think you also need people who are able to say, well, look, here's a way of doing some controlled or limited deployment so we can actually buy a little bit not more knowledge that we can't really get um, in the lab or on test rigs we need to get from the real world but to limit that real world deployment enough that you're not putting people at, at unnecessary risk so I, I think that's a, a a shift in mindset now I talked about you know doing things co continuously but I think that continuum needs to continue into operation as, as 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 well and getting early feedback from operation you know refining what's done um, uh, accordingly and you know I say in theory that's what we do anyway but in in practice I see in lots of cases there's quite a big disconnect and I, I think we can't afford to have that disconnect anymore not, not so, trying to pin it down to a particular cause but what would that normally happen is there is there pressure about return on investment or is it about just um, you know ambition to get whatever the, this is into into operations and not consider that actually there might be things that you need to learn on the on the way and to have maybe a phased rollout rather than it being go big bang type thing right i mean i, I think you do indeed do a phased rollout in order to manage the risks i mean you know partly it is a focus on return and investment but i also think there's a a, a deeper um, problem, um, you know, if, if you take something like autonomous um, road vehicles, you know, human beings have a very rich um, understanding of semantics, you know, they know what bicycles are and what toddlers are and 
they have an understanding of context. Oh, it's actually um, going home time from school, so there's going to be a big flood of kids out of the school, maybe not looking where they're going. You and I know that. Um, the autonomous system doesn't. Um, it's extraordinarily hard to build a model of the world rich enough to encode all this. Um, and so the machine learned models know things about people and their trajectories, and it will, you know, estimate their future position um, from what it observes but it doesn't have these richer models and you know I think they're not likely to have those richer models for some time to come so I, I think what you end up doing is saying well actually I've got to deploy this thing from the lab from the simulation environment into the real world to try to identify if the areas where my models are too limited and I need to add additional things into those models to sort it out. I mean, I can give you a, a very concrete example of that with an autonomous um, vehicle. They need to identify individuals, people, to make sure they have a trajectory that, that misses them. Um, I, I know of an autonomous vehicle um, in development um, where it saw um, an ad advertisement on the side of a bus with life-size pictures of people on it. And it decided they were people. Now, you and I would never make that mistake. Uh, the vehicle doesn't anymore because they've added some extra constraints to the way the model works. But the things like this, that you know, with hindsight, you say, OK, well, next time I develop one, I'll remember that. But, you know, it's extremely hard to have the foresight and things which, you know, you might call common sense uh, for people. It's really learned understanding of the of, of the world. But the models don't have this and, and the problem is there are many many of these things you'll never learn them all but you have to expose the system to the real world and go oh bother that's something I've forgotten it's important enough I need to encode into the system and you know it will never have a complete model but you'll get far enough um, that things are safe to deploy and you know safer than than human drivers ultimately because they will not lose concentration not be distracted um, whatever but but actually, you know, getting them far enough into that real understanding of the environment around them is, is really tricky. And I, say, I, just, I just think it's impractical to do that by simulation. Um, you have to do enough simulation to be confident you can deploy them safely enough for those sorts of further development stages. But that last bit of refinement is going to have to be done in the real world. There's no other way. But in doing that, the, the risk associated with whoever is the manufacturer or designer, the liabilities that arise from that, because the, um, the consequences could be massive and it could be numerous as well. So how do, how, does, how do you square the circle on that one, really? I mean, to be honest, I think it comes back to engineering judgment. You know, when the development is good enough, the likelihood of it doing anything seriously wrong is um is is small enough of course if I, you know if i get to autonomous vehicles um you know a lot of what we've seen they've driven around with so-called you know safety drivers for a long time and you know there have been cases where waymo vehicles have had problems and they've just stopped and then you get remote assistance to help the vehicle out and you have to sort of manage the risks um operationally that way um can you make it perfect no um, but you can't make anything uh, perfect. But there's an engineering judgment, um, you know, that you've done enough that it's reasonable to, to deploy. But, you know, I think we're still in the position of, you know, building the engineering knowledge and experience to make better judgments of, of when these things actually 
can be deployed in a in a reasonable way. Uh, probably also worth saying, you know, systems I know of where people are going to really do, um, you know, this this step to driverless deployment tend to be in more constrained environments in factories or um, on you know industrial sites where there are still um, people around but they're employees they're trained um, they can have people explain to them behavior of the, the vehicles so actually you're balancing the operational risks through procedures and you know training of, of, of staff and so on and to be honest I think we'll see you know things in that sort of domain um, perhaps on farms where it's actually harder to get enough agricultural um, workers uh, and so on faster than we'll see these things deployed on the road or deployed at sea um, because um, you can actually you can't control the environment but you can constrain it or manage it um, in a you know in a, in a way that you can't say for you know driving around Milton Keynes or London or York or wherever. No, and that's, um, that's really helpful for me because I was, I was getting to that point with um, going down that route of, you know, we've seen autonomous cars um, having accidents and it's a big thing in the paper about it and you just think, well, yeah, that's just that's one out of however many thousands that happen, accidents which happen on the road because of what humans do. So, you know, where, where is the trade-off? Well, you can say that actually that's got to be better than where we were starting from now and within different cultures, it's different in terms of the, you know, the accident rates, et cetera, which occur. I think in the long run, these systems will be uh, better than people, but that might only happen by, you know, some changes in the in, in environment, having, you know, technology that, that helps the, the vehicles. Um, you know, why do we use cameras to determine what state the traffic light is in? Why don't they, you know, communicate their state to the vehicles? Um, they can do that. There's some experiments around doing that. I know car manufacturers like to have their vehicles independent, but I think over time the culture will change. Of saying actually having this um, infrastructure support, I would call it, actually makes a difference between able to ha have confidence in the. Um, deployment versus not you know you only have to be you know behind a bus or a lorry and you can't see the traffic lights okay the vehicle should stop if the vehicle ahead is is, is stopped but it yeah it's just actually knowing okay it stopped because there's a red light that's that's fine oh, it's changed to green i should expect to move off shortly um it, it technically it's not very complicated to do but it does make a big difference you know in the system design in the trade-offs in your ability to assure uh, assure safety so i think we'll get that shift in in, in balance as well in, in in time which which really will make these things uh, you know better than humans under and under not on all circumstances but in many circumstances hmm. yeah and, and uh, what i picked up was when you were talking about it in a you know in agricultural environment or within a um like a warehousing environment then the fact that pedestrians are there is you can segregate pedestrians and you can do the things which you you could do i suppose in a similar way to to robotics where you know, it's guarding by distance or having fixed guards and those sorts of things so you can't get to the device so i understand that that side of it I, mean, I think in some of those cases you will be able to use physical separation some of the time um, the difficulty is going to be around you know maintenance or um, you know dealing with um, emergency uh, situations and some time ago you know we looked at some work in a in a quarry and, and the the big trucks you know the 40 60 ton trucks were autonomous 
the guys at risk were the maintenance folks who would have to go out and, and, and fix things if there was a, um, a, a problem. So the normal operation was made much safer, but actually it shifted um, the risk into uh, you know a, a different class of the workers. And so I think actually that, that sort of thing will over time um, lead us to question some of the, the ethics more if there are real you know shifts in risk distribution um, over uh, over time are we going to say actually are we prepared to deploy things like this that that, that make this shift in risk distribution and maybe we will be um, but I think we'll start to ask more questions in that ethical space than we have, have been doing hitherto. Yeah, and um, who decides? I, I suppose is the is it's the enforcement agency or the agency or the government that's in 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 place at that point in time. I guess is it acceptable or not, and does it have a cost risk benefit? I think some of these things will actually come back to um, the government to make some broad decisions about what's acceptable. But I think we'll probably see deployments that we will learn from before government puts these sorts of regulations in place in, in many areas, because it's really quite difficult to you know, write down general um, principles. Um, but but it's, it's also the case, I think, until we actually see things in operation, it's harder to see where the, you know, the, the, the tricky questions are. And, you know, my uh, Assuring Autonomy program I run is looking at some of these ethical issues. We've been advising the DFT about some of this stuff regarded to, uh, uh, regarding autonomous uh, road vehicles. And you know, I, I think you'll see, I see more activity in that space. But I think it would really take, you know, quite a lot of time before we end up with a consensus and things end up in, uh, end up in regulations but it will it will come but i think it will take time do you, do you think uh, uk wide obviously you you look at it from a global perspective but from the uk do you, do you think this is a one of those opportunities to be the leaders in this field in terms of uh, safety and how you how to go about designing things in a, in a safe manner um, yes, indeed, I do. I, you know, I think some of the work in the UK is already showing that we have a national lead in that. You know, some of the work that's been done around standards. I think you know some of the developments that some you know companies have been uh, d- doing um, in this field. I think show that we actually have some some real intellectual um, leadership. You know, if you look to the United States, you see more deployment of these sorts of vehicles, but you also see lots of problems about you know cruise vehicle. Um, stopped by police, but then it drove off again. The accidents that have occurred with uh, Tesla. I think the UK is is showing a much better balance in that, and trying to put some of the, um, you know, the regulations, the standards, that the frameworks in, in place to allow these things to be introduced in a in a safe way. And I I hope some of that intellectual leadership will be, you know, picked up and influence those in other parts of the world as well. Yeah, I think the great thing is, um, and uh, the health and safety profession sometimes gets a bad deal or gets a bad rap. But you know, when we benchmark ourselves against the rest of the world, you know, the, there is a lot of focus on what do we do here and how do we do it. And it'd be great if uh, this topic was one of those. Yeah, I agree with you about that. I think it would be, 
you know, really good if, if we, I, I think in some senses intellectually we do have a leadership, but if we could, you know, continue with that and, and really make a, a, a difference to how these systems are developed and, and, and deployed, you know, I, I think that would be really fantastic. And as you know, the you know, centres of, of excellence um, around in academia as well as in, in industry that I think enable us to have that sense of leadership and, you know, the support through the DFT, through some of their programmes, I think has also been really crucial in that. Something on a, a sort of a specific topic is that the uh, the use of drones has become something which um, has been used by all sorts of organisations to find and solve all sorts of problems, not only efficiency, but also from a safety perspective. Have you been involved in any of that, John? Only only a small amount and more sort of you know talking to people at the periphery of, of that although you know we have a, a project um, starting now using using drones in in mines I'm not personally leading that one of my colleagues is uh, but I, I I think this is quite tricky because I think there are you know really significant benefits you know being able to say monitor power lines or things of that sort of nature in a way that's quite hard for people to uh, get to um, but in some areas um, you can actually cause severe problems and I think it was a drone that caused a, a fire that meant quite a large wood burnt down because it you know, it crashed with a, a, a battery failure and the lithium-ion battery fire you know basically burnt down the whole wood and you know that's very very sad um, but it, you know but if it had landed in a in a in a village or something like that, it could have been a much, much more serious event. So I, I, I think we've got a little bit too much freedom um, right now in, in what can be deployed, where and I think we're going to need to be learn to be a little bit more cautious um, about uh, about that because you, you know you think what's well, small, it's only a few kilos, it can't do very much damage. Actually, in the wrong place, it really can. Uh, and, and so I think we just need to be a little bit more uh, rounded on our risk assessment with these sorts of things. But again, I, I think there will be there'll be real benefits uh, around around those in in time. Yeah, and I, I was talking to a guy at an event who was a stonemason, and um, his the risk which he uh, had in what he was doing was that he was going up and doing the survey was one, but then quoting was another, and by using a drone he could eliminate both of those risks by sending a drone up so you can take photos, you can show the client, you can you don't need to get a scaffolding out, which has all the implications around around that. And similarly at the same event I was talking to somebody who said, well, the great thing is that we'll have drones flying from one depot to another to distribute and then from that depot to the person's uh, location. And I just thought, I know where that depot is and the flight path might be actually over my garden. And uh, it's not something I would probably want to have. It's uh, having that nuisance of drones flying backwards and forwards. So the environmental impact of it, as well as a uh, you know the safety piece, is, is something to consider as well. I guess. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I I think that's right. I mean, you know, in, in in my view, one of the things these sorts of technologies will do is is actually make us take, um, you know, a broader perspective not just think about safety think about the environment think about some of these ethical issues so again you know if you look at the sort of future of the safety profession i i think you'll see us having to to broaden our interests and uh, and concerns and to make 
you know, make judgments. You know, example you gave with the stone mason. I don't live all that far from York Minster, and I see some of the work that they do, and I can see, you know, instantly how the drones would really help them. Obviously, they won't be able to replace the pieces of stone, but could take quite a lot of risk out of what they do. Could also, I'm sure, allow them to be much more efficient by going and looking at what really needs work doing on it and what doesn't. But there are cases when it's actually the risks are not going to be outweighed by the benefits and you'd have to say well actually no you know we're not going to do that and you know I'd, I'd if I'm the stonemason I'm going to be very careful what day I choose to fly my drone um, as if it's windy or, or whatever I could get into all sorts of difficulties with that so I think I think you, know, you just have to think of it about what the benefits are what the risks are and how you control and, and balance those so you end up with something that you know there's a there is overall a net a net benefit from their from their use um, can be done in many cases but i think we, we need to take that broader perspective a more holistic perspective around risks and benefits about ethics about environmental impact and so on and as always i think from my perspective is that i, I default to hse guidance um, industry standards and guidance you look to those places to make sure that you come up with the right answer or what is you know as right as it can be given the circumstances and your competencies so uh, you know the hse's got uh, has got a lot to, to consider but also you know i think that's part of the success of how we operate within the uk is having that understanding that one they do enforce but primarily there for guidance and um being invited um to the to be is it a non-executive with the hse is that how it's position john yeah i'm non-executive director that's right yeah it's very interesting but you know, to, to pick up specifically what you're you're saying we know a challenge for any regulators this technology moves very fast and almost inevitably you know the regulations are, are, are lagging but uh, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of um, r2p2 reducing risks protecting people which i think is a really good thoughtful document my understanding is the hse are are, are likely to produce uh, a more up-to-date um version of of that you know, addressing some of these other challenges and even if there, there aren't you know clear-cut answers in some of these areas i think it would help frame things in such a way um that it, you know help people you know think about the risks and, and and the and the balances you know the current you know r2p2 you know has some you know uh, examples there which help you you know see that greater risks are acceptable in some circumstances than in others and i hope we'll end up you know seeing the same over the next year or two relating to some of these sorts of of technologies but i do think we need to be at the, the level of thought pieces you know not just requirements at, at this stage because i don't i don't think we have all the answers and i think the technology is moving so fast if you you know try to write it all down in a standard by the time you'd finished the world would have moved on uh, so i think i think we need to be more in the the principles and guidance than in in hard requirements and hard standards at this point all the things you've been talking about isn't sort of alien to me it's interesting because i obviously hadn't got a full breadth of understanding of what you what your specialism is but i'm happy that as a practitioner i'm learning a lot from what you're saying but also it's all making sense you know it's all fits into how would i go about it in a different context and you know where i grew up you know over the last 35 years in health and safety it's changed considerably from what we how we used to deal with it I used to get red graves out and say, you know, dangerous moving parts, section 14, 
you know, we'd say, you know, it's, you've got to protect it, you've got to, got to guard it, fixed guard's the best thing, you know, and all those sorts of things. But also you've evolved over time to, to, to try and deal with those things which are different. So like lasers in technology, you know, how do they come about and how do you deal with those safely? Yeah, I think that, that, that's right. I mean, actually what we try to say, say to people that in many senses that the safety issues are not fundamentally new. You know, a hazard is still um, a hazard. It, maybe we have new ways of causing hazards that, than we did before and the risk-benefit balance may be different. But but actually, at, at, you know, at, at, at fundamental, the, the, these things are the same. You know, I think you need to look at the trades perhaps more than you would have done previously because they're more um, complex. Uh, Actually, I, I don't think intrinsically it's different. And so in terms of the work we do, what we try to do is say, you know, um, use a standard process. But here are some of the, the, the deltas, the additional things we think you need to do at this point in the process to deal with this sort of te technology. And, you know, we're, we're currently looking at a particular operational um, in environment and what we're you know, trying to do is to identify for this particular organization you know what the deltas should be in their safety management system for how they deal with autonomous systems you know on a site where previously they haven't had any so it will look very familiar to people there will just be these extra things that you need to c consider as you develop that and so and I hope that will actually you know make sense to practitioners and they'll be able to pick them up and use them yeah and it sounds like the uh, the MSC that you're you're running and uh, the, the work that you're doing will will actually um, filter out to those people which are challenged with these things and um, that'll be part of their it's in their toolbox of things that they can reach into and and, and really start to apply what is the fascinating part of being a safety practitioner is that you, you're working with people to find the solution. It's not about you know it all, but you can ask those questions which actually lead them to make the right decisions, which is uh, which is what gives me the buzz about doing what I do. I don't do it as much as I used to because of my role, but uh, I still get asked some questions, and I just uh, I, I can still I can still deliver stuff basically in terms of trying to understand what it is that the the issue is and then get the people to try and find a, a solution for it because they generally know how to do it it's just need to be how do you help them and coach them to get to the right decisions absolutely that's right actually i like that as a there's a model that you know the you're, you're in a safety role you're actually there to help people and i think that's exactly right and i have you know gone into meetings when you know you get this sort of stony looks from people and say you know um we're the safety guys we're here to help you and you get this rather shocked look but usually in time you can make them realize um you know the aim is not to tell them no they can't do it is to help them find a way that they can do what they want to do but to but to do it safely and you know that hasn't changed with this technology it may become more tricky to do it but actually i think you know fundamentally that aim um is 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 the same and as you say, that's what makes it interesting. I agree. Now, I've been, I mean, like you, I've been doing this for about 30, 35 years. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm still doing it is because it remains interesting, you know, facing and trying to solve these new problems. Yeah, and it does. And, uh, it's, you know, every day you learn something. And, you know, I was on a course uh, this week and, you know, you just pick up stuff. Either what somebody says, a different viewpoint, a different understanding and being able to listen and uh, sort of process what it is that's being said and how it's being said. Is, is key it's a key skill for practitioners i can't say i've got it but it, uh, you know i've learned that that's what you need to do 
was going to say, I'm not sure anybody can say they've fully got it, but it's a, it's an ongoing journey, isn't it? Because everything changes so so fast to think you're forever ever learning. But again, that's what makes it interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, I'm just considering whether or not, having said it out loud, was that perhaps, and you, you saying it, is that sometimes people like to say no because it's a it's an easier place to be because if you don't understand it and you don't want to apply some thought about it then it is easier to say no isn't it i mean naturally you'd say no and then proceed from there rather than saying yes and i suppose it depends on what's what's in your profile and um yeah and it's about wanting to go out and find out about things is uh, is is key to being a practitioner yes yeah and, and indeed it is and only you were saying you know that in your current role you don't get to do you know that much work as a as a practitioner obviously in my role as an academic I don't either but you know occasionally I get asked to do things by people and it tends to be where they know the problem is non-standard and I'll engage my brain in trying to think how to solve the problem rather than just say well it says in this standard you should do do x so and so that's great but it's also I think you know good for the work that we do that we you know that uh, myself and my colleagues do have that engagement in you know in, in practical projects I, I think it helps you know keep us realistic you could be quite idealistic in, in this and I think by doing that we end up you know being more realistic and more helpful uh, in, in what we do because we see you know the the complexities and the challenges of some of these novel novel technologies and I think you know hopefully that will carry on for a long time because you say it, it, it does make what we do much more interesting than it might be otherwise. It's been really good to uh, talk to you, John, and uh, part of the reason that we're doing the, the podcast is to be able to share with others that um, I was fortunate to be to grow up over time with uh, working in groups of people, which was practitioners, and I know that there's a lot of people out there that may be the only practitioner in an organisation, and being able to dip into conversation or thoughts or views is, uh, is really important, and really thank you very much, John, for your input, and uh, good to get to know you even more. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Thanks, John. All the best. Thanks so much for listening to Risk Sleep Repeat. If you'd like to appear on the show, if there's a topic you'd like to discuss, or if you want to let us know your thoughts, please do so using the hashtag risksleeprepeat or get in touch via our website at praxis42.com.